You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Um, here's my disclosure statement. Okay, so case one. So this is a 40-year-old African-American female who presents to the office complaining of discoloration of her face, neck, and also um, some skin irritation. Um, she does have a history of PCOS, and she's on spironolactone as well as birth control. Her daily routine is 30 to 45 minutes for her face. This is what she has to do every morning to remove hair, to cleanse her skin, to um, apply um, makeup after she's done all this. So this is, you know, a, a lot of time, okay, and a lot of work um, every morning. Um, she was um, very, very um, upset about her skin. Um, it made her feel like a man um, to shave every day. Uh, she um, has had a, she had a baby at the time, and um, she didn't even want to rub her face up against her baby. Um, because she was um, afraid that um, the whiskers or the hair would traumatize her baby's skin. So she was a very distraught female. And so as you can see on physical exam, she has um, hirsutism. Um, she does have um, pseudofolliculitis barbae that Dr. Lexis spoke about, and also some hyperpigmentation. So um, when we put all these three together, um, they have to be addressed all really at the same time. And when you think about treatment options for your patients, um, you're not only thinking about um, controlling um, the hair um, as well as you're trying to control um, the pigment production. So, you know, it's always a good conversation to have with patients when they come in and they say, oh, I just want a bleaching cream, you know, for the discoloration. I mean, you have to tell them that you have to go after the cause. And you can't just treat um, the hyperpigmentation, but you have to go after the cause. Because as long as that hair is being removed and the hair is growing back underneath the skin, it's going to the body's going to continue to make more pigment. And as you're plucking or shaving or doing things on the surface, you're making pigment. Um, skin lightening creams, hydroquinone, is just not going to work. And so you have to make sure that they buy into um, removing the hair as well as treating the skin at the same time. So we always have to remember when we think of PFB, we do think about it's a condition that's more common in men. But it's actually very common in women of color, especially if they remove their hair, not only on their face or neck, but under their arms, the bikini area, um, the abdomen, the chest. Um, you can get PFB in these um, areas as well, just from the hair removal process. Um, and it's always important to know that the more, con the most, um, the, the, the concern that they have more so than anything is um, the PIH. So you got to keep that in mind. So what do we do for this patient? Um, well, the first thing, uh, my treatment regimen that I like for PFB and PIH is I always put them on um, an oral doxycycline. It's an inflammatory reaction um, of the skin, and anti-inflammatory effects of doxycycline is well established. Um, I also use a mid-potency topical corticosteroid twice a day. And I think that's important, again, to bring down that inflammation. Um, anything to do, anything you can do to bring down inflammatory, uh, inflammatory process um, to help with the PIH, to help with this condition, I think is very important. I do not keep them on mid-potency steroids for long periods of time, but I think it's important to do it initially. Uh, we recommend laser hair removal, and like Dr. Lexus stated, um, the ones that are safe for patients in color. I also have the Kuglide, and I've had it forever, um, is the long pulse neodymium YAG laser. 
And so um, we use that, um, pro- that, that laser with um, um, contact cooling. Um, treatment sessions um, are usually every four weeks. I mean, some patients, particularly men, you might have to do every two weeks. Um, and, but every four weeks is usually the norm. And with her, I think we even started her off with every three weeks because uh, she had so much hair. Her polycystic ovarian syndrome wasn't under control with her current regimen. Um, we also um, pre-medicated her with 4% hydroquinone, and throughout the whole treatment cycles, um, we maintained the 4% hydroquinone. And so she had about five or six sessions, and then, of course, um, some protection. So this is her before, and this is her after photo. She is in heaven. And she just came in, she comes in the office now still for her maintenance because you got to still, you know, maintain these results. But she's the happiest person on the planet, and um, she hugs me every time. So you have to make sure that these patients realize that it's not a quick fix. She still has, um, you know, the, the polycystic ovarian syndrome, and she'll always have that. And so she has to do her maintenance, and she is so committed. Um, she comes in for her laser treatments. Um, at the time, I think it's like every three to four months initially. And now she's like up, up to every six months, and now, um, you know, she'll build into once a year. Um, that hair is pretty much under control because we did start her on efluorothene hydrochloride, which is Vanica, and she uses that religiously. And, of course, um, she has her sunscreen. And look at her. She doesn't need to wear makeup. And that's the main thing. She wears it because she wants to and not because she has to. Any questions? Come on, let's get some questions. Yes. Ask a question or make a comment about the makeup. Uh, it's a little bit tangential from what you what you were saying. It just reminded me of a safety issue with makeup. Have you ever had the experience where your assistant uh, maybe didn't uh, remove the makeup completely before treatment, and then? The, uh, you end up with uh, absorption of the light from the laser on the surface of the skin and induce a burn. Have you ever had that before? Um, yeah. No, I haven't okay. had that. But I'll tell you, that is something that is a strict protocol. Yeah. Um, if my patients are in that room without, with makeup on, my girls are in trouble. Okay? They're in trouble. Because for fillers... You know, for any type of cosmetic procedure, oh, yeah, they need to take that makeup off. And that is true. Um, you can get a burn. Um, yeah. And that's um, not good because they hyperpigment. Yeah. And then you're dealing with that. Yeah, so I always am very cautious about that. So I'll, even if they said that they've removed all the makeup, which they do because it's part of the protocol, I'll take an alcohol wipe and wipe it again before mm-hmm. I even treat just yeah. to be sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then keep makeup wipes in, in the rooms, which is really good, too. Okay. Um, next case. Okay, so this is um, a patient who's 64 years old, African-American female, and she complains of increasing number of moles on her face, her neck, her chest, and her back. And so these moles have you know, been increasing in number, and um, she's very concerned about um, this, um, this condition. She wants removal, but she's fearful. And the reason why is that she had cryotherapy um, performed on um, the seborrheic keratosis, or these dermatosis papulosa nigra lesions, and it left um, hypopigmentation. So she wanted them to be removed, but she was very, very nervous um, about the procedure. 
So dermatosis papulosa nigra, uh, benign hereditary growth, we see it is very commonly in skin of color patients. It's a sign of aging. So, um, you know, we always think about what are anti-aging treatments, and we think about fillers, and we think about, you know, botulinum toxin and um, uh, sagging skin and uh, skin tightening. But you have to remember, these DPNs are associated with getting older, and patients do not like them. And it is something that is very common in skin of color patients, and so these areas need to be addressed. And I always say that, you know, you can have a patient who, who looks like this, and you can fill up those nasolabial folds, you can blow up her cheeks, but she's still going to look old. Okay, as long as she has um, this, the seborrheic keratosis or the DPNs on her face. So you have to treat those and address those too as well. <clears throat> so these lesions um, are usually multiple. They can be pedunculated. They can be flat. Um, it is a cosmetic concern, but it's also a medical concern because they can get irritating and, and cause um, um, inflammation of, of the skin when it's in certain areas, like the neck and get caught on jewelry. Um, we treat it in a variety of different ways. Um, if they're pedunculated, we use um, scissor excision. Um, if they're really thick, um, liquid nitrogen is, is good to help to debulk them, um, just kind of slough them down a little bit. But you try not to go um, too aggressive with the uh, cryotherapy in fear of the hyperpigmentation and, in some cases, depigmentation. Um, the treatment of choice, I think, is electrodesiccation, and it's with or without um, curatage. Laser surgery has also been um, discussed in the literature, as well as a high concentration of um, hydrogen peroxide, which is not FDA-approved at this time. So we chose to use electrodesiccation without curatage. And so this is just showing you another patient who um, actually came in complaining about um, hyperpigmentation from liquid nitrogen where um, a physician um, used it to uh, treat her separate keratosis. And, you know, you look at this, it's an actual scar. I mean, it's going to take a long time for that to repigment. Um, you can use the eczema laser um, to try to repigment the skin, but um, the patient is very unhappy and is, is something that you definitely want to be careful with with patients with skin of color. So we use electrotesication without curatage. And we clean the skin with alcohol, of course. Um, some patients need a topical anesthetic, and it's applied one to two hours before the treatment. Usually we recommend like LMX4, because they can get that without a prescription um, over the counter. They can apply it to the area before they come to the office. Most ladies don't even really need it. They want their moles off so bad, um, they don't even ask for numbing cream. Um, but we do numb up and use um, lidocaine with epinephrine for those areas that I think I'm going to have to turn the juice up of, um, on, that, on the hyphricator. So some of the larger ones, um, I definitely would numb up with lidocaine, but the small little ones, you don't need to. Um, the setting is on low. I um, mean, it's on one. And the only time you want to increase it to two or three is if the patient's numb. So that's if you're using lidocaine. So like, you know, that big thick one right there, you're going to have to numb that up. And then you can turn your juice up um, to about two or three and fry it. Um, they gradually fall off um, in a week. Um, immediately after the procedure, I actually apply cortisone to their skin to help with um, the erythema. And um, I have my ladies um, just lubricate with um, either Vaseline or Aquaphor, and that actually helps to, to loosen up um, the uh, necrotic debris so it sloughs off a little easier. And the main thing you tell them is that, you know, you can do your routine. You clean your skin, you put your moisturizer, your sunscreen, you do makeup, you do whatever you usually do but just don't pick them off before they're ready. I mean, that's that curatage, and I don't like it. So they, um, 
they listen and they don't pick them off because if they do, I tell them, you're going to have hypopigmentation if you pick it off before it's ready, and then that's going to have to have time to heal before we can do a second treatment. Did you treat her entire face in one setting? Pardon? Did you treat her entire face in one setting? No. No. Um, we do it like in sections and so, or sessions. And so, um, because even though you might treat one thick one, only half of it will fall off. And so then they have to come back in for another session. So you can see she had about four sessions, four weeks apart, and look at her skin. Okay? So this is just by using electrodesiccation. And here's her front. So now you look at her. Now she's ready for her fillers, right? Okay? So now we're ready to plump her up, okay? We took off them moles, and she's ready. But um, as you can see, uh, she's a very happy patient. Any questions? I think all the questions are going to be at the end. Okay. Case number three. Um, this is an um, African female, and um, I think she was, she's about um, 42. And um, she came in the office complaining of darkening of her skin as well as acne. Her current regimen, she's using a combination product. I don't know what is in this combination product um, from a dermatologist, um, but she did say it had kojic acid, um, licorice, as well as arbutin and umbilica. Umbilica. Is that umbilica? Yeah. I've never used it. But anyway, it was a combination, and she was using that. Um, she had some irritation from the product, so she went and bought, purchased um, hydrocortisone over the counter and started using that on her skin as well as um, this combination, and she denied um, using sunscreen. Um, in the past, um, she gives a long history of using Movate. We talked about that, um, which is clobetasol that these patients can get over the counter. Um, and she was using Clear Essence 2% hydroquinone for a long period of time on and off. And so when I saw her, I was like, oh, wow, there's so many different things going on here. So the first thing, you know, I thought about was, um, you know, does she have melasma? Is that why she was using this in the first place? Has she already progressed um, and developed exogenous ochronosis? Because she's been using um, hydroquinone on and off for many years. And then she was using um, hydrocortisone. So then, and Movate, which is a steroid. So does she have a steroid dependency, steroid acne? So I was like, you know, I'm not sure, you know, really how to uh, deal with this patient, but let's go ahead. What are we going to address first? What do you think we should address first? Anyone? Pardon? I can't hear her. Sunscreen. 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 Yes, I think sunscreen is good, but you know what? The only problem is, is that I am so scared to touch this face with anything. Um, because she's been using those steroids for so long, and she has steroid acne, steroid dependency, you know what happens when you stop steroids? That skin just flares up. Because anything you put on it, it wants steroids. So it just won't heal. It just act up. So I was a little nervous about the sunscreen because most sunscreens are chemical sunscreens and can be irritating. So I was really, really, um, you know, not sure what to do with her. And so, um, again, this is just to reiterate what um, Dr. Lexis talked about is Movate is what she was using. It's clobetasol. And you can get um, clobetasol in any of these ethnic stores on the corner. And patients come in with um, steroid dependency, they have atrophy, they have stria. I mean, you can look at the patient until they've been using clobetasol for long periods of time. So, um, you know, you gotta be 
very concerned about what they're using on the skin and they need to bring it in, just like how your patient brought in that whole bag. You really need to examine their products. So this is what we did. I, I said she definitely has melasma, and she probably has some steroid acne or steroid dependency. So I told her she had to discontinue everything that she's using. Um, gentle skin care, um, doxycycline. I do have the SPF 50 there, but I didn't initiate it right away. I gave her samples and told her to hold off. I wanted her to use the topical calcineur inhibitor um, at least um, twice a day, and I told her she's going to be on it for a while, that the skin needs to calm down. So you would not want to give a steroid to calm it down because you're trying to wean them off. So you can use tacrolimus. Um, you can use any of the topical um, calcineur inhibitors, as well as doxycycline, to really, really help to withdraw the patients from their steroid acne and steroid dependency. I remember back in the days, we just had to tell patients to go cold turkey and just stop everything, and um, their face would blare up, and they would call in the office, call in the office. But now when we have these topical calcineur inhibitors, we can actually calm the skin down. And so what I decided to do was after she... Um, got through this steroid dependency, we started her on azelaic acid, 15%, because I did not want to give her hydroquinone. And then we initiated um, SPF um, 50. Also, we did the um, polypodium leucotomus, or the Heliocare as well. I don't have it here. Um, we also started her, after she did that routine for a while, we started on tazeratine cream to use at night. And then um, we initiated some chemical peels um, every four weeks um, times five. So this which, was like a series. It wasn't all done at one time. Yes. What type of peel did you um, She actually had vitalized peels, which are um, modified Jesner's. Okay. And... Um, and then um, eventually we'll probably do um, the short pulse 1064 neodymium liag laser, but at this time she really hasn't started that yet. But so let me tell you, it took a little while, um, but we got her to where she needs to be. And I'm just showing this slide again, only to show you that with chemical peels and skin of color, you need to be very, very careful. And I showed this slide earlier of a patient um, who went to a spa and had a TCA peel and um, what can happen with these peels. So you have to be very conservative with these, these chemical peels. Do a test area if, um, if you're not sure of how the patient's skin is going to react. Um, but I just wanted to show that again. So this is her. So she did pretty well with the routine. And it's hard to kind of see it now, but she has a lot of telangiectasia. So she looks a little reddish. It's because of that atrophy by using that steroid, that Movate, for so many months. And so she definitely doesn't have exogenous crinosis. So we kind of ruled that out because she actually got better. Whereas exogenous crinosis, yes, patients don't get better. But um, she's very red. So we're going to probably use... Um, um, the laser um, on her to treat the vasculature as well as the pigment. And then this is her from the side. So you can really kind of appreciate um, here in this area, you can see a lot of um, telangiectasias and um, redness of her skin. But she looks a whole lot better. And um, she was a tough case for me. And, but she's doing a lot better. So we're going to do some laser on her, try to even up that complexion. Okay, and that's it for my slides. What is your opinion on the SPF with soy in it, the Aveeno Positively Radiant? Um, I use it. Um, I think it's, um, it's nice for, for patients who have um, eczema as well as those who are very dry. So it's a really moisturizing base. 
Um, I actually use it myself. And so it's um, really good for patients who, um, who need moisturization. Now, if you have an oily patient um, who has acne, I probably wouldn't use it. It's too thick and too creamy. But um, I think it's a really good product, and I do think soy has um, beneficial um, effects to it. So um, it is something that I do recommend in my patients who have hyperpigmentation. All right, so we do have some questions. Um, what are your past experiences with um, Vanica? Um, well, you know, I'll tell you, when it first came out, um, my patients of color would use it, and it wouldn't work. And, and, it, and we finally found out the reason why it didn't work. They would use it for two, three months, like instructed twice a day, and it just wouldn't work. And it's probably because the hair um, and, and patients of color, um, African-American patients, the hair is very thick, and it's, it's coarse. And the studies were done on fine blonde hair on the upper lip. So it really wasn't meant to um, be used on patients um, who had um, thick, curly hair um, on their chin and their neck. So at first, you know, I thought, too, it just doesn't work. But what we did was we treated the patients with laser hair removal, and that decreases the thickness and the texture of the hair. The hairs that do grow back after laser um, are finer and they're more manageable. So then Vanico all of a sudden was working. So um, initially it didn't work for me, and now it's something that um, we sell in our office, and all patients who get laser hair removal, they're on Vanica, just about. Okay. Um, let's see. What level do you put the cautery on for skin of color to remove? And that was on one. So that's the hyphricator, and just on one. Um, it's the lowest setting that you can, um, you can use. Um, what level do you recommend um, for electrodesiccation? Oh, okay, so one for cautery. Um, I don't think I do a lot of um, cautery, electrocautery. I probably, um, yeah, I don't use it really for that. I think so the I'm, question I'm kinda, is, would it's you like use, too different. Yeah, would you use a higher setting for a SK removal versus a DPN removal? Okay, yes, oh, definitely. Um, for SKs, you know, they're thicker. And so you can either um, freeze them to debulk them down to almost skin level and then um, numb up and electric desiccate the base. Um, I don't like to keep freezing and freezing until it's gone because if you freeze too much, you're going to get hyperpigmentation. So I think the safer um, procedure would be electrodesiccation. And if you don't want to use liquid nitrogen, you can, on a thick SK, you just numb it up and then you can turn the juice up and then just electrodesiccate um, the top the surface and slough it down. So you might have to see the patient back and always tell them that these are thick, you're gonna to need to have more than one treatment and say it at least two or three times, you're gonna to have to have more than one treatment because otherwise if it doesn't fall all the way off, they're calling you back and saying, um, it didn't fall off, I don't wanna pay copayment, not coming back in and pay another copayment, it's, it's still there. So you always tell them six times that it takes two treatments when they're thick to debulk it and get it down. And of course you're doing multiple at one time, but um, they forget that, okay? Um, what level do you, okay, how long did each of the electrodesiccation treatment sessions take? Um, I'm pretty fast, so I would say um, 10 minutes, you know, maybe that, you know, it's just like bzz, 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 and then sometimes you got to bzz, bzz about two or three times, but it's fast, and you just, and um, they fall right off. It's wonderful. I've had hundreds removed from my face. 
Okay? It's a great procedure. My PA, anytime I see one popping up, my PA is zapping me too. Okay? So it's a wonderful procedure. And I, would, and I always say it's probably the most rewarding procedure that we have in our office because it's, it's not that many. I mean, you can't really discuss a lot of um, side effects. I mean, unless they pick them off, they might get hypopigmented. Sometimes they might get a little hyperpigmented, but that's okay. If they get a PIH, just use some, some hydroquinone. But um, patients are relatively very happy when you remove those off their face. It makes them look about 10, 15 years younger, and they appreciate that. Um, let's see. Uh, and how much do you charge for electrodesiccation treatments for DPNs? Well, if they have some that are elevated, um, you can, um, it's a medical concern, and you can get those um, authorized through the insurance if they're elevated, and the patient tells you that they're itching or they're getting caught, um, you can um, bill the insurance company for that. But if it's something that's cosmetic that they just don't like the way they look, um, we charge $300 um, per session, per session. That's okay. what my office does, too. Pardon? Same. We're $300 yep. as well. Per session. Mm -hmm. So if some don't come off, don't come in and say, I want you know, some free ones done, mm -mm -mm -mm, per session. And if they come back and they have like two or three, you know, then you might just charge an office visit. You know? But if you have to do a whole 10, 15-minute um, session, then you're going to charge again. <clears throat> okay. Um, it's okay. Thoughts on treating hyperpigmentation under the arms? Oh, it's usually due to either contact dermatitis or it's due to um, PFB. So you can do laser hair removal, um, use some cortisone, um, like a very low-potency desinide, prodesophoam, one of the low-potency cortisones, and use that just for a couple of weeks just to kind of calm the skin down. And then if it's um, PIH, then you've got to use a skin lightening cream. And then they need to use um, a, a deodorant that's very mild. Uh, we usually recommend, like, um, uh, clinical strength Dove. Um, let's see. Oh, you keep, you keep moving these. I lose my place. <laughs> what are your thoughts on... <laughs> okay, okay. Thank you. Always go to the top, right? Okay, all right. Um, Andrew, you need to answer some of these questions. <laughs> I'm going to do the next one, and you're going to take the next one. Um, what are your thoughts on over-the-counter 4% hydroquinone, which can be found in the ethnic hair care area of drugstores for about um, $5? Um... I have not seen um, 4%. I've seen 3%. Um, have you seen 4%? Not legally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen 3%, which is not supposed to be. 2% is what's over the counter. Anything higher is not supposed to be. But just like clobetasol, you can find clobetasol in that corner store. You definitely probably, there's some 4% hydroquinone in there somewhere. And, um, but I've not seen seen that. I've seen 3%, and I was so upset when I saw that. Um, what was the name of the over-the-counter product you stated that patients can use to numb their skin for the DPN removal process? Um, LMX4. Um, we actually um, sell that in the office, too. Um, I think the, it's either Biopel or Ferndale, one of those two, and they're kind of almost the same. But um, they can find that over-the-counter without a prescription, um, and they can purchase it, and they apply it before they come in. And I always tell the ladies to apply it one to two hours before, bring it with you, and when, and when you're in your car on your way upstairs, do a second coat, okay? So by the time they come up, they're nice and numb. Um, if it's like on their back, um, you know, they need to um, use some plastic to put over um, the DPNs. 
and the um, numbing cream to have so it doesn't rub off on their clothes. And so you don't want to use too much of a topical anesthetic, but if you have isolated lesions and it's one hour or two hours before, it's okay. On the package, too, it says for hemorrhoids. So I always tell my patients we're not using it for that. It can also be used on the face for aesthetic procedures. Yeah, and, and you know, they, um, they, have two, they have two different ones. So they do have one that says hemorrhoids, yeah. but they do have one that comes with a little patch, and it's mainly for, like, for children, for when you're going to oh, draw their blood. That. So um, we have, like, instructions that we um, give out to the patients. Well, that's a good point. If you don't dispense it in your office... It's good to preemptively explain that right. they might say it's for hemorrhoids. Otherwise, you do get a, a phone call. Yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I probably need to add that, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> we got about a minute. Let's see. How would you treat... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, what was the name of the... Can you say yeah. it? Okay. How would you treat multiple warts, Veruca, on the arms or legs of a patient of color, mostly with the goal to avoid scarring? Um, I think, you know, with warts, um, you know, you have to use liquid nitrogen. I mean, um, that's, that's what we use. And you just warn them that um, they can get hypopigmentation and that eventually their color will come back, so don't be alarmed. Um, but you can let them know that. And I think, you know, it's different when it's on the face versus if it's on the body parts. So I definitely would say um, I use liquid nitrogen. Andrew? Yes, I still use liquid nitrogen, but it's uh, it is nuanced. You know, we may not be freezing it as, as you certainly should not freeze it as aggressively as you might do in another patient. Since I work with a lot of residents, you know, first year residents, they've just come, they're just starting dermatology, they've they've never held a cryo. Um, therapy uh, canister before and sometimes if you're not if you if you're not in the room with them uh, I've seen unfortunately uh, like permanent depigmentation when they've over over freeze so um, we take for granted the the art of it you know we're used to doing it but uh, if if you're less experienced with with it you want to just be you want to minimize that uh, that freeze thaw time yeah, and I'm old school still. Um, I use an applicator, and I use a cotton ball, and I twirl it around the, the cotton ball top. And so I can make a really pointy um, applicator, and I just do this. <laughs> I don't use that spray gun. I, I just don't like it. I like to be very precise, and I want my liquid nitrogen to go exactly where I put it. And so um, I'm still old school. So I make my own applicators in the office in between patients. And it's a really good technique that does minimize overfreezing and getting it on the perilesional skin. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, guys. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.